Tech Fighter Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 515 for the 16th of October, 2016. This week, if you look at a display of Wi-Fi signals in your area, you should find that they're all on channels 1, 6, and 11. But you probably won't because somebody misunderstands how the system works. Apple's operating system for notebooks and desktop systems is now called Mac OS, and a new version has some useful features. But good luck in getting the update file downloaded. In short circuits, I was reminded this week why everyone who uses a scanner should have a copy of ViewScan. If it seems that USB is taking over all computer connectivity, that's not far from the truth. A quick look at some search strategies intended to keep your computer safe. And in spare parts only on the website, get advance warning about flu outbreaks from your phone, and a list of the 10 most dangerous celebrities comes to internet searches. When installing a new Wi-Fi router at home, it's easy to make what seems like a logical choice that has the potential to slow your wireless access and that of your neighbors. The trouble is that the bad choice seems so logical. Maybe you open an application like Wi-Fi Analyzer on an Android tablet or phone and see that everything is concentrated on channels 1, 6, and 11. Well, you might think, if those channels are busy, maybe I should use one of the others. Don't do it. There's a reason why everything is on channels 1, 6, and 11. Wi-Fi isn't like normal radio or television. If two radio stations are on the same frequency or channel, the result is an unlistenable mess. As a result, the Federal Communications Commission and similar agencies outside the U.S. create standards for station spacing to avoid co-channel interference. A Wi-Fi channel isn't a tube, though. The signal is centered on a given frequency, but it extends beyond that frequency, well beyond that frequency. The width of the signal and the distance between channels is such that channels 1, 6, and 11 are sufficiently far apart that they don't interfere with each other, and signals on the same channel negotiate with each other and routers to deal with signal collisions. If you decide to use channel 3 or 4, for example, your signal will have to compete with other signals that are using channel 1 and channel 6. But before we go any further down that road, consider this. If your Wi-Fi router is a dual-band unit and your devices can operate in the 5 GHz band, use it instead. The 5 GHz band offers 23 non-overlapping channels that are 22 MHz wide. Most routers manufactured within the past couple of years are smart enough to pick a clear channel on the 5 GHz band. Some are even smart enough to modify their own power output to maximize signals for you while minimizing interference for others. This is all the result of FCC rule changes in 2007 that required devices operating on 5.250 through 5.350 GHz 
and 5.470 through 5.725 GHz to include dynamic frequency selection and transmit power control capabilities to avoid interference with weather radar and military applications. As more people move to newer hardware, channel selection will no longer be a manual process, and there are plans to start using frequencies in the 60 gigahertz range, that's called Y-Gig, when the 5 gigahertz band starts to get crowded. So far, that hasn't happened. The forthcoming standard would be 802.11 AD. But if the devices you have are mostly still 2.4 gigahertz devices, you still need to think about channel allocations. So here's why choosing a non-standard frequency is a bad idea. Wi-Fi versions up through 802.11n operate between the frequencies of 2.4 and 2.5 gigahertz in 14 channels. Each channel is 22 megahertz wide. Now, if you multiply 14 times 22 megahertz, you'll immediately see that the engineers put far more than 100 megahertz worth of data into that 100 megahertz package. Every 2.4 gigahertz channel overlaps with two, three, or four adjacent channels. That may have been bad design, but it's what we have. There are some images on the TechBiter Worldwide website this week. They are from Wikipedia, and they show the channel allocations. You'll note there's a channel 14. It doesn't overlap channel 11, but it's also not available for use in the United States. Those in-between channels might seem less crowded, but channels overlap and you'll still encounter interference from nearby standard channels. Worse, perhaps, is that your non-standard channel will cause interference in the standard channel. As standards go, the ones for 2.4 GHz Wi-Fi are old. They probably could have been a lot better. If the standard channels had been defined as a set of four instead of a set of three, overall throughput probably would be better. That would be 1, 4, 7, and 11, or maybe 1, 4, 8, and 11, or 158 and 11. But trying to establish that frequency layout now would require changes by everyone who has a router in the 2.4 gigahertz band. In other words, don't hold your breath. So what you want to do is select the least busy of the primary channels. In a residential setting, it might be possible to just eyeball it. If two neighbors are on channel 1, 7 are on channel 6, and 5 are on channel 11, then channel 1 would probably be a good bet for your router. If the channels are equally populated, or if you're in a business environment where there are a lot of signals around you, you'll need to do more work. Peter Grace has a very long and technically complex article that describes how you can determine which channel to choose. The article also covers interference from other sources that can adversely affect your Wi-Fi connection. There's a link to it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Apple's OS X is no more, but don't be sad. After more than 16 years, Apple has moved on. As of September, OS X is now Mac OS. There's always been confusion over the letters OSX. Should we pronounce it OSX or OS X? At least there shouldn't be any confusion over how to pronounce Mac OS. 
But maybe some people will say Mac OS and some people will say Mac OS. We'll see. The new version is named Sierra, and it's not a revolutionary update, but Mac users will find several features to be happy about, and besides, it's a no-cost update. Mac OS or Mac OS, call it what you will, but obtaining the update may prove to be a bit challenging. When it was offered, I requested the download. The file is 4 gigabytes. That seems rather large, but it is, after all, an operating system download. Should have downloaded in less than half an hour. The first gigabyte arrived quickly, but then the process slowed down, ran for about 10 hours, and failed. A second attempt produced the same result. This time, though, it ran for 14 hours and failed. I contacted Apple support and was told to reboot the router and the modem, even though the downlink speed was in excess of 60 megabits per second, and I had tested that. Then I was told to start the Mac in safe mode. The download process again began normally. The first 3 gigabytes, 75% of the file, downloaded in approximately 20 minutes. But then the download process didn't complete for 18 hours. The delay wasn't my network. It wasn't my network connection. It also apparently isn't unusual. There have been numerous reports across the Internet of horrible download experiences. I've never seen performance this poor for a Microsoft download, and during my discussion with Apple's tech support folks, I kiddingly asked them if they were using an Atari 400 as the download server. The response, well, I always think more of it as a Commodore 64. The unspoken message here seems to be that Apple tech support is aware of the problem, but doesn't seem to be able to do anything about it. Once the download itself finished, the process of installing Sierra took about 25 minutes. So you're probably wondering what's new. Well, Apple has caught up with Microsoft by putting a talking assistant on the desktop. Siri has made the leap from the iPhone to Mac desktops and notebooks. And now that she's off the phone, she's able to do more. You can still ask Siri for a weather report, but she can also look through the files on your computer if you just say something like, show me all the files I edited yesterday. If the computer's language is sent to U.S. English, Siri can be an American, Australian, or British man or woman, or an Irish or South African woman. I switched Siri to Russian, and he wasn't able to understand me. Doubtless, this has more to do with my fading Russian skills than with any technology that Apple has invented. Apple already has excellent connectivity throughout its various products so that users can start a message on an iPhone and finish it on a desktop or transfer a website link from a desktop so that you can finish reading it on an iPad while you're on a train, assuming you live in a part of the country where there actually are working trains. The new Mac OS attempts to make this feature even better. Copy and paste now works between devices, or so I've been told. I have a Mac notebook, but no iPads, iPhones, or iWatches, so I couldn't test it. Many of the other new features are of little value unless you use the entire Apple ecosystem. Apple Pay, which is available on iPhones, has also come to the desktop, at least when you use the Safari browser and you're on a website that supports Apple Pay. In other words, it's not exactly universal, and you'll need to have an iPhone or an iPad nearby. Likewise, the hands-free unlock feature, pretty clever, uses an Apple Watch. It's a really cool feature, but only if you have an Apple Watch. I haven't worn a watch of any kind in at least 15 years. Microsoft computers can be unlocked with a password, a PIN, or if you've set up Windows Hello, with your face. Now you'll be able to unlock a Mac with your iWatch. This is a good feature, 
But it's also a pretty clever way for Apple to sell more watches. Given what some people think of Bill Gates, you might think that he's in charge these days at Apple. Yet another new feature in Sierra is one that Apple refers to as optimized storage. The goal is to reduce the amount of space files consume on the computer. It does this by moving files that you rarely use to iCloud and deleting some files that you don't use at all. If it makes you a bit nervous to put an automated process in charge of what files are deleted, I sympathize. But Apple seems to have made pretty safe choices. For example, if you leave a file in the trash for more than a month, it'll be deleted. That seems pretty reasonable. Those who live in a more Apple-centric universe than I do will find lots to like about the Sierra upgrade. Those who use Macs only occasionally will find few, if any, must-have features. Still, it's a free upgrade, and if you can get it downloaded, it does bring useful functions to the Mac, even for us occasional users. But a certain amount of craziness is probably to be expected. If there's one thing about the Mac OS that makes me slightly more crazy than I already am, it's the insistence on splitting the menu from the application. When I switch from a Windows machine to a Mac, I invariably try to move an application around by grabbing the top of the menu. Try that on a Mac and nothing doing. But there are lots of things to like about Macs. In fact, I wish there'd be a way to combine the things I like from Windows with the things I like from Macs. When I replaced a Windows desktop system with a Windows notebook system, connecting the two monitors, arranging them, and getting them to stay on when I closed the computer's cover took a lot longer than it should have. When I wanted to use the Mac that way, a quick Google search revealed that the process is simple. The MacBook must be running on AC power. There must be an external keyboard and mouse attached. Well, that's pretty obvious. And you have to attach the monitors. Duh. After that, a quick run past settings to turn off mirroring completed the process. And networking. I have a network-attached storage device, and I haven't been able to connect to it since switching to the notebook Windows system. I have to use an FTP application to view files on the drive. The Mac sees the drive and connects to it with no problem at all. Well, all of that's off-topic today, though. Maybe some other day. In short circuits, every scanner owner needs ViewScan. I've been using a substandard scanner simply because it's convenient. A scanner is built into the Canon MF216N printer that I use, and it sits where an Epson 3200 Perfection Photo Scanner used to sit. The Epson scanner had been in storage for more than a year, but after replacing the desktop computer with the notebook computer, a network problem kept the Canon scanner from operating. I found a place where the Epson scanner would fit, installed it, and visited the Epson website to get the Windows 10 drivers. There weren't any. Now this is the second time Epson has done this to me. But then I realized it really doesn't matter. I use ViewScan, and that application can work with many scanners automatically. The Epson scanner is one of them, so there was really no need to find a way to make the Windows 8 drivers work or to buy a new scanner. ViewScan also recognizes the PlusTech film scanner I use, but I did need to use the PlusTech drivers. They are available for Windows 10. 
So now, ViewScan can work with all of my primary scanners. PlusTech provides a copy of SilverFast, but I've never cared for the way it works or for the fact that SilverFast must be purchased and installed for every scanner you use. ViewScan, on the other hand, costs less to begin with and recognizes just about any scanner on the planet. If you pay a little extra, you get some extra features that advanced users will appreciate and updates forever. I've talked about ViewScan previously, and my experience this week reinstalling the film scanner and the flatbed scanner following the hardware update was a reminder that I hadn't talked about it in a while. Even better, ViewScan runs on Windows, Mac OS, and Linux. If you need to scan documents, you need ViewScan. It's available from Ed Hamrick's website. He's the developer. The price is $40 for the basic application or $90 for the professional version. The professional version adds film and slide scanning, optical character recognition, and some other advanced features in addition to the unlimited free upgrades. And Hamrick's licensing allows you to use the application on up to four computers with any combination of operating systems and any number of scanners. So although I started by saying the scanner on the Canon multifunction device no longer worked because of a network issue, I found that the problem was actually the driver software. After I reinstalled it, the scanner is now visible across the network as the printer had been from the start. This is good news because the scanner includes a document feeder and that makes it ideal for scanning text documents. If you're old enough, you may remember when USB 1.1 was released. You'd plug a USB device in and cross your fingers. Maybe it'd work, maybe it wouldn't. Then came USB 2, and now USB 3. Serial and parallel ports are long gone. Even USB 3 is being threatened by faster interfaces. But for now, we live in a USB world. When combined, the ports on the notebook computer and the docking station for the notebook computer that replaced an enormous desktop system total eight USB 3 ports. But I still need a 10-port USB 2 hub and a 4-port USB 3 hub to run all of the attached devices. In addition to that, I have a USB 2 switch that allows me to switch up to four USB devices between two computers. That means I can connect a keyboard and mouse to my computer or to a small notebook computer that sits behind my computer and provides access to a client's network. If you're interested, check out a list of the USB devices connected to my system. I'm not going to read it here on the podcast, but check it out on the TechBiter Worldwide website. USB has an interesting history. USB 1.0 was rarely seen in the wild. If somebody tells you they remember USB 1.0, either they're lying or they're uncommonly well-connected. USB 1.1 was the first generally available release. It ran at the smoking speed of 1.5 megabits per second, or 12 megabits per second, depending on your device. That was really fast in 1996. USB 2 was released in 2000. It increased the speed to 480 megabits per second. USB 3 offered 5 gigabits per second starting in 2008, and 3.1 pushed that to 10 gigabytes per second in 2013. These are fast enough to allow external USB hard drives to be used for processes that demand quick disk performance. Video, for example. 
Thunderbolt is more of the same, but different. Developed at roughly the same time as the USB 3.1 specification, USB Type-C was finalized in 2014. It defines a new reversible plug connector for USB devices. The Type-C plug connects to both hosts and devices, so it replaces that silly batch of Type-A and Type-B connectors. Intel developed Thunderbolt. Thunderbolt 1 and 2 use the same connector as the Mini DisplayPort. Thunderbolt 3 uses USB Type-C. It was initially developed and marketed under the name Lightpeak. Some people say we need standards. Well, I say we have standards. Lots of them. It seems sometimes that we have way too many standards. Spare Parts, you'll see some information about celebrities whose names are dangerous. Search for one of them and there's a pretty good chance that at least one of the links you're offered will be to a site that attempts to plant malware on your computer. Intel's McAfee Security Division offers some tips for searching safely. These apply, though, not just to searches for celebrities, but to all searches. Here's what they suggest. Think before you click. Are you looking for the latest episode of Amy Schumer's TV show, Inside Amy Schumer? Don't click on that third-party link. Instead, get your content directly from the original source at ComedyCentral.com to ensure that you aren't clicking on something that could be malicious. Be really careful when you search for torrent. This term is by far the riskiest search term out there. Cyber criminals can use torrents to embed malware within authentic files, making it difficult to determine if a file is safe or not. It's best to avoid using torrents, especially when there are so many legitimate streaming options available. Third, keep your personal information personal. Cybercriminals are always looking for ways to steal your personal information. If you receive a request to enter information like your credit card, your email, home address, social media logon, don't give it out thoughtlessly. Do your research and ensure that it's not a phishing or a scam attempt that could lead to identity theft. Fourth, browse safely using protection like McAfee WebAdvisor software. WebAdvisor will help keep you safe from malicious websites by helping to identify potentially risky sites. You can get a free version from the McAfee website. There's a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. But be careful if you use one of these advisor-type programs. Sometimes they can provide their own false sense of security. And use cross-device protection. Consumers need to protect all facets of their digital lives, regardless of where they are, what device they're using, or where they have stored their personal data. Use solutions that work across all devices to deliver protection against threats such as malware, hacking, and phishing attacks. If that sounds kind of like a commercial, well, it was from McAfee. It's generally good advice. You don't have to use McAfee software. There are several providers of Christ device protection systems. Be sure to check out Spare Parts for an explanation of why these precautions are important. And speaking about spare parts, this week, only on the website, get advance warning about flu outbreaks from your phone and a list of the 10 most dangerous celebrities 
when it comes to Internet searches. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.